Hi, everybody. I'm John Donvan, and welcome to Intelligence Squared and to a debate that is prompted by the end of an era that we have just witnessed, and that is the passing of Queen Elizabeth II, whose personal popularity during her lifetime certainly bolstered the standing of the institution that she represented for a record 70 years, and that is the British monarchy itself. She certainly helped to hold it up. I think it was important to be there. Um, I know that maybe sounds a bit daft and old-fashioned, but if it is, it's 350,000 were feeling the same way. And uh, just, just wanted to say thank you for all the service, really. The opinion I get is how out of touch and out of time this is. Yes, it is tradition, but in fact, I think it just highlights that this is like a fairy tale. It's like a scene out of a Disney movie. But now that she is gone, what of the institution itself? What purpose does it serve for the British people? And, and how is that purpose defined? And if it does not serve the people, which is the position that America's founding fathers took when they declared independence, how should we imagine a Britain without a monarch and a monarchy? What would that be like? What would the implications be? So, long live the British monarchy? Yes or no? That's what we're debating. Our two guests are Graham Smith, who leads the group Republic, and Philip Blond, who is director of the Respublica Think Tank. And though their organizations have nearly identical names, these two British writers and thinkers will be answering our question from opposite sides. Graham and Philip, thanks so much for joining us on Intelligence Squared. Thank you. Great pleasure. So just so we know which side of the argument each of you will be coming from, I want to go first to you, Graham. And as I voice this sentiment again, long live the British monarchy, do you say yes or no to that sentiment? No, very simply because it's wrong in principle, wrong in practice, and bad for Britain's politics. Okay, thank you. So that tells us, Philip, which side you're going to be on. This is a binary situation, but just for the record, again, long live the British monarchy. Are you yes or no? Oh, a strong yes, uh, because it's right in principle and better in practice. Okay, thank you, gentlemen. Now we know which sides you're coming from on this argument. But Graham, I want to go back to you first to give you a few minutes. Uh, since you're taking the no side, which is actually more disruptive to the status quo, uh, let's have you go first and tell us why are you a no on the question? Well, I mean, it, it's wrong in principle because we are Democrats. We believe in equality, the rule of law, accountability, and so on. Um, it is quite obviously uh, undemocratic to allow someone to inherit public office, which is what this is. I mean, the, the king is our head of state. Um, that is a part of our constitution, and it is, a, it is a an affront to democratic values to allow someone to inherit that. And all of the uh, assumptions that underpin that inheritance, such as uh, certain people being born into higher status than the rest of us. Um, it's wrong in practice. And what, what I mean by that is the institution itself is not fit for purpose, uh, in the UK, we have a formalized set of standards um, for those in public life, and the monarchy falls well short on all of those standards, such as accountability, transparency, and so on. Um, it is highly secretive. It's been compared unfavorably to uh, the CIA, for example, for being uh, overly secretive. Um, and it is true to say that the royals routinely misuse public money, uh, i.e. spending it on themselves, um, and doing so in a way that would get um, politicians uh, into an awful lot of trouble. Um, not to speak of the well-documented interference and uh, uh, influence peddled by um, Prince Charles, now King Charles, who has seen uh, no problem with trying to sway public policy behind closed doors and without any uh, chance of the public knowing what influence he is having. 
it's bad for our constitution because it leaves us with a one of the most powerful governments in the democratic world as far as domestic policy is concerned. It, it, the crown and the structures around it, um, centralised power in Downing Street. Uh, we have a weak parliament in the face of government for most of the time. We have a head of state who is uh, largely absent constitutionally, cannot uh, do anything to protect the constitution or to serve the people in any meaningful way. Uh, constitutionally, the uh, the Queen and now the King will only do uh, what they are told by the Prime Minister. And we've seen that many times over the last few years. Um, so it leaves our politics uh, and our constitution in a pretty poor state. Uh, it doesn't live up to the standards that we ought to expect from uh, public figures. And it gives us no real mechanism for properly challenging them, not least because of the secrecy. And as I say, we are Democrats, and it is widely known that British people support democratic values, but um, uh, the monarchy clearly stands against those values, not only being undemocratic, but anti-democratic, as its values that it stands on are to do with medieval ideas of divine right and people being born into uh, positions of status and class, which have no place in a democratic society in 2022. All right. Thank you, Graham Smith. Then, Philip Blond, you're on the other side of this. So why are you a yes on long live the British monarchy? I suppose I'm a yes because I think um, I think a, a democracy needs something else besides democracy in order to, to function well. And I think the monarchy represents the pole of the one, that is the hierarchical pole in any human society. And I think that if you actually look at human beings, the principle of the one is ineliminable. You know, the only difference between um, a, a supposedly democratic society and the constitutional monarchy is Democrats elect their monarchs. Uh, every human society in history has been governed by a quasi-monarchical figure. And that is what the president is. That's what the prime minister is. Republics uh, create monarchs, constitutional monarchies have monarchs to restrain republics. So I think the, the idea that somehow a, a pure democracy eliminates kind of monarchical or hierarchical rule is, is for the birds, I'm afraid. It, it, it's simply not true. Um, and moreover, a, a, a society that doesn't have a hierarchical pole, that doesn't decide on which values it privileges over others, what, what are its foundational values, is a society that polarises very quickly. Republics are more unstable because they lack the ability to foster consensus and to create the condition for common values. What um, monarchs do is they, in, under, in a constitutional settlement, is they embody um, common values and they prevent um, partisan values from capturing the highest station in the land. And so far from monarchy, uh, in some sense, undermining democracy, monarchy, um, monarchy preserves it and extends it. And it does this in multiple ways. As I alluded to earlier, it first of all prevents politicians from assuming 
uh, totalitarian control, if I can put it like that, of the political or social sphere. It reminds politicians that, that they don't occupy the highest um, space in the land and that they too are servants. Moreover, in a constitutional monarchy, the monarch is, is the, state, the state of the role is to foster consensus. And if you look at the legacy of Elizabeth, the, the global consensus that she, she helped to foster and generate is unprecedented. I can't think of um, any other person in the world, even including the papacy, who could command the level of global respect and affection where not just Commonwealth countries declared mourning, but Cuba <laughs> as, as well, and Brazil, official days of mourning. So I think that what we're actually seeing is that in a world where we're rapidly polarizing into deep, deeply aggressive opposing camps, and America being a prime example of this, what actually republics and democracy misses is somebody who can foster consensus in, in, in hugely divided societies. There's ample history to show the ways in which monarchs have helped to prevent um, kind of capture uh, or, or overthrow of democratic institutions. And because they embody a good beyond politics, they can actually limit and constrain politics and prevent it from becoming totalitarian or dangerous. And what I think we're seeing with the British monarchy is clearly the good that people see. Okay, so Graham, I want to bring this back to you. And, and um, I understand, Graham, that the thrust of your argument is that um, a, a non-elected individual with a hereditary position, um, not directly answerable to to the public is in itself uh, an affront to our notions of democracy. And it's certainly one I think will resonate with most of an American audience. But before uh, we, we dive into your part of the argument, I would just like you to stay with the point that Philip is making, that a, a monarch can be a stabilizing, unifying kind of ballast for a political system, especially for republics, and that in fact, the British monarchy has served that role. Do you see any merit to the to that case that Philip is making? No, and with the greatest respect to Philip, um, he speaks in these grand theoretical terms, and the theory that he espouses has no bearing on the reality of monarchy at all. I mean, the notion that monarchs uh, defend democracies from totalitarianism is simply untrue and it is a, it is one of the most pernicious myths about the monarchy the idea that the the monarch uh, somehow restrains our politicians or holds power away from them now you know the uh, the greek monarchs um of the 1920s and 30s and 40s uh, colluded with fascist and military regimes. The king of Italy colluded with um, uh, Mussolini and was in on the throne throughout his uh, fascist government. The um, Greek king in the 1960s then uh, was absolutely useless in the face of another military coup. The Thai king, the last Thai king, not the current one, uh, was on the throne for a very long time and uh, uh, throughout a history in which there were multiple 
military and civilian coups and dictatorships. The current Thai king, and this is a constitutional monarchy in uh, in law, um, the current Thai king is absolutely uh, in bed with the military dictatorship, um, and the list goes on. More from Intelligence Squared U.S. when we return. Welcome back to Intelligence Squared U.S. Let's get back to our debate. Look, I think that that the institutions themselves require what one might call a thick account of them. But, you know, just as Graham um, posits the compromise of, of of kings. You have the attempted 23F coup in Spain in 1981. The, the Thai king in 1981 and 1985 did prove um, uh, decisive, um, as was the governor general in Granada in 1983. So, so what what you have are counterexamples, and and what we're trying to cast out here is is the type of role um, that uh, a king can perform. Now, obviously, both both kings and political cultures can fail that high watermark, um, but that isn't an argument against the existence of that. That, that, that is the normal uh, feature of monarchy, is they their purpose is to defend their institution, and they have historically uh, failed. I mean, we, there's a reason why there are so few left, and those that have uh, stood have utterly failed when they have been challenged by authoritarian regimes. Now, in terms of the British monarchy, the idea that the British monarch can defend us against politicians is complete fallacy. The British monarch is utterly powerless, uh, has no discretion, and will only do what the prime minister tells him to do. Now, the Queen uh, acquiesced to a... Um, uh, prorogation of Parliament uh, in 2019, which was then judged to be um, unconstitutional. Everybody blamed Boris Johnson for instructing the Queen to prorogue Parliament. No one pointed out that the Queen uh, did nothing about questioning whether that prorogation was legitimate or constitutional at all. And she was never going to do that because her position is to do what she's told, even when what she's told to do is unconstitutional. I just want to give Philip a chance to respond to several, some yeah. of the points you're making because you're making several there. Go ahead. Yeah, I think, I think Graham's got a very narrow and poor view of, of British history. Um, throughout British history, what we see are examples of the king siding with. Uh, for instance, the peasantry. Uh, if you go into the into the House of Parliament, you see something called the Star Chamber, which was convened by the monarch to stop the rapacious capture of um, of common land by the the aristocracy and the peasantry and the king were allied and often peasants in in um, in medieval and early modern periods got far greater justice in the royal courts than they did in the manorial courts. So the king has always in the British settlement been allied with um, the notion of justice. And indeed, if you look at the colonial expansion of Britain, countless times you have 
the British monarch writing to the colonists saying uh, in, in America, in you can see the letters um, from King Charles saying to the colonists that the natives are Indians, uh, are, are my citizens as well, treat them well. And you see this replicated throughout British history in Rhodesia, where Cecil Rhodes invaded Matabele Land in Australia, that the, the express royal um, claims were made that the natives were also subject of the monarchs. So you have throughout British history, the monarchs um, uh, trying and in some cases succeeding to exercise power for, for the general good. I find it quite extraordinary that it is argued a positive that a monarch in England might assert that they that people in uh, indigenous cultures in America are subject to, to their authority. That is not a, a good thing. Now, the, the, the notion that the monarchs are on the side of the, the little people, if you like, is perverse. I mean, they have used violence and torture and imprisonment for centuries to uh, impose their power. And since James I, they were right the way through to when the slavery, uh, slavery was abolished, they were very active participants in the slave trade and made a lot of money from it, including the later, uh, the future King William, standing in the Lords and arguing against its abolition. But, you know, the debate now isn't about what kings might have done in 1500 and something. It's about what the monarchy does now. And now, as a democracy, we have a head of state who only does what the head of government tells them to do. And therefore, it is uh, we lack any checks and balances. All right. Let, 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 let me jump in and take that point to you, Philip. I want to bring to you the point that Graham is making, that the British monarchs in in, in, in contemporary British monarchs are, don't really have a great deal of impact on the democratic process they, because they don't have a great deal of uh, authority to, to intervene. In fact, Prince, uh, Prince now King Charles has had to say publicly that he's going to kind of step back from uh, a role he enjoyed taking for the last uh, 40, 50 years of commenting on public and trying to influence policy in certain areas like climate change, et cetera. And now that he's king, he has to kind of shut up. And so uh, it seems to me that may go to Graham's point that the monarchs don't have much authority to exert influence in a positive way. Yeah, well, I think he, here I in part uh, agree with, with Graham. I would give the monarchs much more power. Um, I. They're far more popular than politicians. They, you know, in certain ways enjoy, you know, 80 to 85 percent support. Graham's belief that they don't serve the little people isn't an opinion shared by the little people. It's an elite bourgeois opinion by by people who are convinced of kind of one unreflective form of ideology, I think. And and what um I would like to, Charles's opinion on the environment, etc., have been light years ahead of others. And I would like to see them, him taking a much stronger role. And in the sense of the type of power that the, the, the monarch authorizes or uses, it's quite hard to tell because you have to think about what politicians can do um, uh, and what they can't do. So you have to prove a negative. So you have to kind of articulate what um, aspect of, of the monarchy, kind of how it shapes the whole conduct and discourse of the, of the body politic. 
And I think that that it, it civilizes the body politic. It prevents the rise of very extreme forms of polarization that you can and do see in um, in republics. If you think of how successfully Queen Elizabeth um, fought uh, against racism to integrate um, the uh, the Commonwealth countries of Africa within the Commonwealth when she came to the throne, uh, there were seven. There's now well over uh, um, 55, some of them not even in the Commonwealth. So you, you have a sense that the, what monarchs do is they orchestrate, if they do their job well, and you can always have bad monarchs, is that they orchestrate uh, a, a, a form of behavior and a context that helps preserve civilization. And I think no, they don't. I mean, there's no grasp the big argument. Others can. Okay, let's. I, I want. I want to let Graham jump in on that point. Um, I mean, the, the things that Philip is saying. You know, it's it's a lot of theory, but it doesn't reflect the reality. I mean, the idea that the Queen was fighting racism when she lobbied in the sixties and seventies, as governments were introducing laws to protect people from race discrimination in the workplace, she successfully lobbied to have herself and the royal household excluded from that legislation and you know the the commonwealth you know as we've seen recently people are getting very angry about uh, slavery reparations and about the history of colonialism and a lot of that anger is directed at the monarchy and at the royals themselves so this wider notion that the monarch somehow uh, influences uh, our body politic again it just doesn't stack up it's there's no evidence of this and you know we are as prone as any other country to extremism and we've had plenty of that uh sort of polarization in recent years so is that a failure of the monarchy no it's just the reality of the society that we uh live in but the monarchy fails us on many other accounts now you know we have to look at the real evidence and not just make sort of uh generalized claims saying republics are less stable. No, they're not. I mean, democracies and democratic republics are more stable. And if we look at, uh, in Germany, for example, which has a very strong motivation to remain democratic and stable and to uh, see off extremists, is a federal republic. Um, If you look at places like Iceland and Ireland and Finland and Austria and uh, Portugal and all these places, they have... uh, uh, elected heads of state, whether directly or indirectly, uh, they have elected parliaments, and they are stable and uh, successful democracies. So, Graham, what do you, what do you make of the fact, though, that there are other democracies in, in Western Europe, um, Denmark and and Norway, uh, the Netherlands have royal families and are absolutely qualify as stable democracies, and and in, in in you know the the queen of denmark is enormously popular and the monarchy is enormously popular there and not seen as a challenge to the basic kind of gut understanding of what it means to be a democracy yeah i mean you know we can see that democracies have retained some democracies not many have retained monarchies i mean in terms of the issue of stability where countries are stable and the monarchy has managed to survive into the late 20th century then they're more likely to survive because the pressures aren't there to get them but i mean the dutch monarchy has seen a sharp fall in support over the last few years um the british monarchy i mean i don't know uh, where philip's getting his information but the john curtis a very well known pollster 
in the UK was just writing uh, yesterday, I think, saying that the monarchy in Britain is uh, at an all-time low in terms of popularity. Support for the monarchy has dropped sharply over the last four years, um, and support for abolition uh, has increased. Um, but, you know, all of these countries in Europe also have Republican movements and also have serious questions about the nature of those monarchies. They're just not quite so ostentatious and so uh, obvious in their failings. But the British monarchy is particular in its failings, not least because of the position it has in the Constitution. I mean, we we have a situation uh, which was uh, termed about 50 years ago as an elective dictatorship because of the enormous power that is uh, held by Downing Street, by um, the Prime Minister and uh, their government. And that a lot of that comes down to the Crown and the powers of the Crown that have been transferred wholesale into the hands of the Prime Minister and their ministers. Um, you know, and this is a significant failing, Less, you know, not even getting into this, the actual failings of the institution itself. Politically and constitutionally, it does not serve us. Uh, it serves the government uh, and the Prime Minister of the day. So, so, Philip, I, I know that the the core of your argument has been the degree to which the monarchy serves the British people, but um, the king is now the king of 15, head of state for 15 other nations, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, Jamaica. Um, to what degree does your argument for the value of the monarchy relate to the British monarch's role as head of state in those other countries. Is that is that critical to the point that you're making? Um, I think that what's happening is that as societies polarize, particularly in the West, and fragment and increasingly become conflictual, that the need for um, a politics and, and polity that speaks to the general welfare and the general good, that is free of ideology, that is free of politics, becomes ever more pressing. And I think that what, what you see is not just that the British monarch is, is, is celebrated in the Commonwealth, but beyond. I mean, it's remarkable the, the, the number of countries and nations that are declaring national mourning, you know, from France uh, to Bangladesh to Brazil. Um, all of these, all of these nations also are experiencing division. And I think that what what we're seeing is is that, uh, and I think this is the greatness of of Elizabeth, who, as I said, grew the Commonwealth from uh, just seven members to fifty four incorporating most of Africa um, in, in the process is an attempt to create a global polity that can speak to global issues at the level and scale that's required. And in that sense, Prince Charles, who anticipated many of the most dangerous problems that now confront us in terms of environmental degradation, I think has a unique opportunity. And as I said earlier, he explicitly now sees his role as a global one to serve all nations. And I think this will only increase the power and the popularity of the monarchy because it speaks to their idealism and their romance. And they have now become significant political actors. And I think Charles will be more active um, than his mother. And I think that that will be welcomed. 
But what, what does it say to you that there is a Republican movement that seems to be growing in force in Australia or that Barbados, that only last year, I think less than 10 months ago, chose no longer to have as its head of state the British monarch and wanted to go in a different direction, that the trend seems to be, I think the trend seems to be away from involvement by other nations with having the British crown as head of state? It depends where you put your line on the graph, doesn't it? Because you, you'd you have trouble saying that now. And, and what monarchy has done is evolved into a common into the Commonwealth, and we now have members of the Commonwealth who were never colonised by the the British. Mozambique and Rwanda have have joined, and I think it will expand yet further. And so, so I suspect that, of course, there will be Republican um, movements, and they will wax and wane. But I think that if you went back to nineteen hundred. And you spoke about the almost global popularity of the British monarchy. People would be very surprised. In terms of the long durée, I don't think globally the British monarchy has ever exercised such power, symbolic and cultural power, as they do now. And I think that that has changed our ask of the monarch. And we now will want them to operate at this level and to shape. the questions that we need to address at this global level. And they are, they are becoming um, almost the only global figures um, outside of religious figures um, that can speak to the general interest. So I think it looks very positive. Um, what you're saying does not reflect reality. Now, I mean, I've just been reading a book by Philip Murphy, who's one of the leading experts on analysing the Commonwealth, and his general conclusion is that as an institution, it's largely pointless. It doesn't really do an awful lot. Now, I mean, the Commonwealth, which now has 56 nations, um, it is most of those nations are republics. Um, it, Despite its claims to support values like democracy and human rights, it, um, it seems quite happy to uh, make room for dictators and for people who, with awful human rights records. Um, and it is just... Uh, allowed Gabon, I think it was, to join uh, the Commonwealth, which has an awful uh, record on these things. Something like more than 90% of the population of the Commonwealth live in republics. Uh, The Commonwealth was not created by a monarch. It hasn't been grown by the monarch. It hasn't been sustained by the monarch. It is a result of intergovernmental decisions that were influenced by a host of different uh, issues not least the uh, sweeping independence movements of the 50s and 60s, the post-war situation that Britain found itself in and so on. Um, But where it stands now is an institution that has very little relevance uh, beyond its um, uh, sporting um, events that they hold every four years. I'm John Donvan. This is Intelligence Squared U.S. We'll hear more from our debaters right after this. Welcome back to Intelligence Squared U.S. I'm John Donvan. Let's get back to our debate. 
Graham, Brian mentioned with, with, with some degree of wonder the fact that the, the French are publicly mourning the Queen and that Brazil issued a statement and that Cuba issued a statement. Certainly here in the United States, the television coverage has been nonstop. And I can tell you that no other royal uh, period of grieving or funeral will ever get the coverage uh, that we're seeing for the Queen. And I want to ask you about that. About the point that I think that um, Brian really is making is that the Queen uh, has, a, has, a, has a positive reputation globally, and that as the embodiment of the monarchy, that 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 uh, you know comes to the to the to the institution as well. And you know, we we all know as Americans that um, the the British royal family is actually a great tourist attraction. Um, and that it's a, it tells a positive story that uh, that draws a lot of positive attention. And I would like you to take that on and tell us what's going on with all of that. What is that about? Well, in terms of countries um, uh, declaring mourning periods and so on, you know, that is about diplomacy on the whole. And it is about the fact that uh, the Queen particularly is someone who's been around a very long time, uh, who people don't really know and therefore project all sorts of things uh, onto her and and believe all sorts of things about the sort of person she is, and she has become a figure um, who uh, sort of has become more myth than, than than reality, if you like. And so, you know, she does loom large in people's imaginations. And but you know that is what part of the problem that the monarchy now faces, because for most people, the queen was the monarchy, uh, and the monarchy was the queen. That does not transfer to Charles. You know, and that won't happen when Charles dies. Um, you know, so but the beyond that, you know, it isn't true that the monarchy is good for tourism. That simply isn't the case. There is no evidence uh, for that whatsoever. We've done the research. We've spoken to Visit Britain, the leading tourist agency in the country. Um, it makes absolutely no difference to our economy uh, whatsoever. Um, yes, it. Uh, the monarchy attracts um, media attention. Um, that is not global. In you know, it, it certainly within the English-speaking language, it, uh, countries it uh, uh, gets a lot of attention, and certainly to some extent elsewhere. But um, it it isn't uh, the global phenomenon that Philip seems to think it is. Um, so you know, it, it, these things are overplayed and overstated uh, quite widely, and you know. For whatever to whatever extent they are overplayed and overstated, that's with the Queen. Um, that is not going to be replicated with Charles, who people don't know that well and have all sorts of good reasons not to respect or to like or to look up to. And Philip, do you do you think that King Charles may prove a liability compared to his mother? No, I don't. I I, I just enjoying Graham's relentlessly pessimistic and negative uh, view that I think stands counter to everybody's intuitions and, and reality itself. I think that the reason why republics joined the Commonwealth um, at, with the titular, titular head of state as the monarch is because they see the deficiencies, I think, in, in their own polity. And the hope is that the Commonwealth over time will exercise the type of transformation um, uh, that we want and uh, and that people well, That's need. not true, Philip. You're just, and, you're just saying things which are not born in reality. Graham just is so, so desperate to, to, 
to impugn the monarchs. He's saying clearly contradictory things. You know, the monarch's been, a, the Queen Elizabeth was around for a long time, therefore people don't know her well. I think it, it's precisely because the Queen was around for a long time and she exercised a different type of diplomacy, which is acknowledged by all the politicians who would know, but speaks to kind of her power and the type of shaping that she was trying to do. And I think it's very clear that the Queen was instrumental in growing the Commonwealth. Nobody who's involved uh, with the Commonwealth would, would, would think otherwise. So I think that the, on the, pos- the positive side of, of, of the copybook, if you will, is very strong and very evident, and the popular support is there. I suspect Charles will be more successful than people imagine, quite simply because he will be an idealistic and romantic non-partisan voice for what most people think. And I think he will help to restore the notion of consensus to other polities where it's sadly absent. Graham, imagine for me, for all of us, what Britain will look like without a monarchy. Well, you know, what the proposition is, which has been proven to work many times uh, elsewhere, is a parliamentary democracy, which is stronger and more democratic and more accountable, where you you still have a prime minister, you still have two houses of parliament, or the, you would get rid of the House of Lords, which is a whole other um, farce, and you would have a fully elected parliament um, in which the people can be properly represented, and you would have a constitution which limits the power of parliament and government, and you would have an elected head of state uh, who would not be running the government or making political decisions, but would play that symbolic role. What, what would you what would you call that head of state? Would would you have a president? Yes, president. I mean, that, that is this is the common terminology. I mean, we, we, if you see the presidents of Ireland, for example, uh, they have been exemplary. The Michael D. Higgins is a fantastic head of state. Um, Michael, uh, Mary McAleese and Mary Robinson before him were both hugely popular, and their poll ratings are right up there alongside the Queen's. Um, Charles's, of course, is far lower than the Queen's, as we've seen uh, just today. Um, presidents of Iceland have been exceptional as well. Vigdis Finnbogadottir, the first woman ever to be elected a head of state in the world in 1980, um, enjoyed a long period in office uh, in Iceland. We also have excellent heads of state um, in Germany and Finland and elsewhere. And, you know, these people are elected. Um, They serve a limited term, usually a limit of two terms, uh, but their term lengths can vary from four to seven uh, years. Um, and they have some limited constitutional power, so they can actually act as a check and balance uh, to guard the Constitution and to defend the country against politicians who may wish to breach the Constitution. Uh, Philip, I'd like to ask you the same question. What, what would Britain be without a monarchy? It would be denuded of its specific gift Uh, to the world, which is, I think, um, as George Orwell put it, a shared and embodied notion of of common decency. It would be stripped of the ability to foster consensus and so secure um, the democratic polity and and extend equity uh, to all. 
Um, we know that we're in a democratic recession. Democracies are receding across the globe. Democracy by itself is not enough to sustain democracy. And one of the reasons is, is that there's no figurehead for the formulation of a common good. There's no figurehead uh, in these polities um, that can actually help foster the type of communal reverence and enjoyment and celebration that a monarch can. And monarchs, I think, in a constitutional settlement, um, demonstrate that they can help secure democracy against the partisan forces. Stripping the monarchy away from Britain would be like stripping uh, one of the great sort of lights of the democratic world, a, a key part of what has defended uh, that democratic world. It will make Britain a more dangerous politics and a more dangerous polity because nothing is more more dangerous than a democracy without, without um, direction from a, a more shared communal sense of values, as contemporary America makes uh, explicitly clear. Britain is one of the most unequal societies in the democratic world. We have one of the most dysfunctional and uh, centralized uh, constitutions in the world, which make, gives us one of the most powerful uh, and unchecked governments in the world. Um, the idea that democracy is somehow uh, sliding backwards because there aren't monarchs in the round, uh, around is uh, utterly bizarre. And it just, just isn't, um, again, attached any, at all to reality. You know, the, the monarchy is the institution that um, that centralises power, that enables the politicians to do whatever they like with very few checks and balances uh, in place. And the monarchy itself as an institution, you know, the idea that it is somehow noble and gifted or uh, equitable or anything like that, I mean, this is an institution that demands secrecy, deference, it demands public money to be spent on themselves. It protects someone like Prince Andrew, who is facing serious accusations. Um, it allows someone like Charles to receive huge bags of, uh, you know, three million euros in cash from someone who has allegedly had connections with Al-Qaeda. It uh, protects him from proper police investigation when there was evidence that he was trading honours for donations. You know, this is not a good institution of good people. And we can all dream up fantasies about, you know, some benign uh, monarch guiding us all in, as, as if we were all children needing guiding. Um, but the people and cultures and uh, politics uh, flourishes when we are free to make our own decisions, stand on our own two feet, and to control our own institutions and have those institutions represent the values to which we actually believe in, um, and not to be uh, patronised by this weird uh, feudal institution, which is only there to support power uh, of the few. Graham, did you did you have a time in your life, maybe childhood or later, when you were supportive of the monarchy and excited by them, and did you have a kind of um, you know, saw on the road to Damascus conversion point? No, I've always looked at it and thought it's absurd. I mean, I, can, from, I took an interest in politics as a teenager and I always thought it was absurd then. Um, I mean, on a very basic level, I remember just thinking, well, you know, why why would we do that when we can just allow people to choose someone? And the older I got, I looked at 
um, the institution. I looked at what other people do. Um, I mean, if you look at what we've just gone through with the accession, where Charles just, without any consent, without any discussion or debate, um, we he just takes the job for no reason. He's not qualified for it. Uh, he, you know, this idea that he's um, uh, unifying or non-partisan. I mean, his environmentalism is built on uh, a mountain of hypocrisy and eccentric ideas. Um, that he just took that role, uh, believing that he he was owed it because his mother had it. You look back to the last presidential election in Ireland in 2011. They had a number of candidates. More than one of them was eminently suitable to be president. The Irish people had an opportunity to discuss what sort of country they were and how they wanted that represented. So, so, um, so, but let me, let me break in. You're, you're saying you're yes, saying that that King Charles was undeserving. That this was a, a gross act of nepotism, if anything. And I, I want to take that uh, back to Philip. The, the notion that uh, because it's hereditary, um, King Charles had to basically do nothing but keep breathing to get this role, and that he doesn't actually deserve it. I don't know how widespread an opinion that is in the UK, but I'd like you to take on the question, uh, Philip. Yeah, I mean, Graham has a touching faith um, in empty formalism when the reality is that democracy, since indexes, uh, the Besselsman uh, Transformation Index has, uh, has shown the worst results this last year for democracy. Democracies are failing across the globe. And they normally fail and, um, because of a fragmentation, internal values or actual civil war where people can't foster um, common goods and then one side or the other takes over and essentially suspends the other side and suspends democracy. Why I think the hereditary principle is also a legitimate principle. I mean, let's try and apply this to children. Why should? children um, be looked after by their parents if it's just an accident of birth. Let's take children from their parents and ensure equity of treatment in special children's camps. And that, of course, was the ideology of communism. Uh, and I mean, this is getting into weird realms now, Philip. I mean, but I, I, think, I think what Graham is saying is that being the, 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 the Queen's son does not qualify it it certifies him for the role, but does not qualify him for for the role of leadership. Well, I think it does qualify him because what we have is a different account of formation and performance. What we have is the idea that there is a station you will occupy, and that station disciplines and shapes people such that they can perform their duties. And what's interesting is so powerful is that station, that that generally speaking, we've been very lucky with our monarchs. And it's just like with our unwritten constitution. What's A written constitution doesn't guarantee you anything. In fact, written constitutions normally don't work. They can be subverted. So you weren't able in, in America, I'm not taking a position on this, to kind of remove Donald Trump. But in Britain's unwritten constitution, they were able to remove Boris Johnson. Far more effective than uh, than the formal is the informal, which is based upon um, character, tradition, and notions of how one ought to, to behave. And I think that being shaped by, um, 
by a position is also a form of legitimacy. And if we abandon that, what we essentially abandon is the idea that the that power people who inherit wealth, uh, position, uh, which is what dictates most outcomes now, are actually free of any obligations or honor or culture for how they ought to behave. And one of the reasons that inequality has become so rampant in our societies is we've freed um, the wealthy from any obligations of honor that come from their station as being wealthy. What we really should do is expand the notion that adheres to the hereditary principle to other outcomes that that also derive from a similar principle like inherited wealth and reintroduce the notion of responsibility and duty. And I think that's what people responded to Queen Elizabeth um, so strongly uh, for, was her notion of service. And actually, the notion of service is incumbent upon many positions in our society, the army and the armed services being but one example. And this does wonders for human beings. So the very last thing we want to do is remove the idea that that your station can shape you. All right. Not surprisingly, the two of you disagree up to the end, but I want to thank you both for taking part in the conversation and doing so um, respectfully and civilly. So um, Philip Blonde and Graham Smith, thank you so much for joining us at Intelligence Squared. Thank you. Thank you. And the conversation uh, you just heard, everybody, perfectly captures why we do this. You, you know that the way that discourse is taking place in our culture these days is pretty broken. And that's why it's so unusual, but also refreshing to hear two people who disagree actually be able to have a rational and civil conversation that sheds light. And we know from so many of you, that's exactly why you listen to our debates and why I would like to remind you that as you turn to us for that, we turn to you for support. We're a nonprofit and it's contributions from listeners like you that keep us going. So please consider sending us a buck or two or 10 or 50, whatever works. And that'll give you a stake in what we're doing here every week. And it means we'll be here every week, this week, next week, and beyond. Thank you, everybody, for listening. I'm John Donvan, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Intelligence Squared, made possible by a generous grant from the Laura and Gary Lauder Venture Philanthropy Fund. As a nonprofit, our work to combat extreme polarization through civil and respectful debate is generously funded by listeners like you, the Rosencrantz Foundation, and Friends of Intelligence Squared. Robert Rosencrantz is our chairman, Clea Connor is CEO, David Ariosto is head of editorial, Julia Melfi, Shea O'Mara, and Marlette Sandoval are our producers, Damon Whittemore is our radio producer, and I'm your host, John Donvan. We'll see you next time. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.